the word of the Lord says this. And while he was on the way to Jerusalem, he was passing between Samaria and Galilee, Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, ten men with leprosy who stood at a distance met him. And they raised their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they were going, they were cleansed. Now one of them, when he saw that he had been healed, turned back, glorifying God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at his feet, giving thanks to him. And he was a Samaritan. But Jesus responded and said, were there not ten cleansed? But the nine, where are they? Was no one found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, stand up and go. Your faith has made you well. You may be seated. The question, saints, I have for you this morning is, what... And who are you thankful for? Uh, What and who are you thankful for? During Thanksgiving time, it's a time for us to come together and to give thanks for the many things that God has provided for us up to that period of time. And it seems like Christmas is sort of an extended, uh, more uh, lavish Thanksgiving in which we give to one another presents and things like that. But I especially love Thanksgiving time, and um, specifically when I'm at um, my in-law's house, there's a time when we all gather together in a circle, and we all each um, say the things that we are thankful for. I don't know if you do that in your family, um, but it's a wonderful time to hear uh, and to go around to see what people are thankful for. And for the Christian, what should be the proper response? In fact, in many ways, what should be the only response to when someone asks you, what are you thankful for? I guess the only proper and appropriate and fitting response is Jesus Christ. If we were to ask, what are you thankful for? It's Jesus Christ. And a lot of times with us, we, we say, well, apart from Jesus Christ or Jesus Christ. And then we move on to other things as if Jesus Christ and the salvation that we have in Christ is something that should already be a given. When a lot of times it should be the only thing. The only thing that I'm thankful for is my salvation in Jesus Christ. The only thing I'm thankful for is the Father loving me in such a way that he gives me to the Son in times eternal. And that in the present, over 2,000 years ago, the eternal Son takes on my humanity to save me from my sin. And then the Father through the Son sends the gift of the Holy Spirit to apply the Son's redemption to our lives. Saints, How should we show this gratitude and our thankfulness to God? Well, we see this morning in Luke chapter 17, how we are to show our thankfulness to God in this amazing conversion story of 
this one who was dying of leprosy. You see, last Sunday morning, we saw an amazing conversion story in the most unlikeliest of places, which was the cross. But I was thinking about that. And at the same time, it's probably the most fitting place of a conversion story. Because there you have Jesus Christ, the one who will save sinners and standing to his right and to his left, you have sinners. So we can say it's the most unlikeliest of times for for Christ to save someone. But at the same time, it's the it's the most fitting and appropriate time for Jesus Christ to save someone. This man who at one point was was hurling uh, all sorts of verbal abuse at Christ. If you are the son of God, come down and save yourself. I hope you all remember last Sunday morning. And and just an instant, it seems. He starts defending Christ in just an instance. Divine grace is infused into his soul by the spirit and he becomes a preacher of Christ. He begins to be an evangelist for Christ. He is one of the great uh, uh, martyrs of the Christian faith. For he is at that moment dying and defending Jesus Christ. And he's saying everything that the father has said of Christ, everything that Christ has said about himself, that he is sinless, that he is truly the son of God. And that his death inaugurates a kingdom. And he says to Christ those wonderful words, Jesus, remember me when you insure to your kingdom. And what does Jesus say? Today. You will be with me in paradise. What a great, great conversion story that is. In fact, I mean, if you want to talk about who has the greatest conversion story, when we get to heaven, you can think of the Apostle Paul. Uh, you can think of this man here, but I mean, the thief on the cross, it's hard to argue his conversion story. I mean, when we get to heaven and we ask others, how did Christ save you? He was going to say, well, I was actually saved right next to Christ on the cross. Isn't that amazing? When you ask that thief, um, how did you come to Christ? He said, I was there with Christ on the cross with him and he saved me. But we have also another great conversion story. And as we come to the 17th chapter of Luke, we have before us yet another story of Christ's miracles on display. In fact, if there's anything that people knew about Jesus Christ in the day, it was that he had power to do miraculous things. News, I'm sure, was spreading fast all throughout various towns and various villages of this man from Bethlehem. Little old Bethlehem, what good can come from Bethlehem? He had the ability to do unbelievable things. You got to see this man performed. And as we come to our text this morning, we see yet another unbelievable miracle on display. As Christ not only heals ten men of leprosy, but more importantly, and the most, a most amazing miracle is that he saves someone. I mean, saints, when we, when one asks, is God still performing miracles? In one way we can say no, in another way we can say yes. Yes, in the sense of, we are a miracle. Anyone, anytime someone goes from death to life, from being in Adam to being in Christ, is a miracle. The story begins in verse 11. 
where it says, while he was on his way to Jerusalem. And at this point in Christ's ministry, he's beginning to make his way to the cross. He's he's marching to the cross. This hour that Christ speaks so frequently of is is beginning to become at hand where Jesus will offer his sinless self as a sacrifice to the father. Jesus Christ at this moment is currently on that redemptive road. And in verse 12 and 13, it says, and as he entered a village, 10 men with leprosy who stood at a distance met him. And they raised their voices saying, Jesus, master, have mercy on us. Here we read as Jesus, and I want you to picture this scene, he enters into a village and immediately upon his arrival, ten men with leprosy each raise their voice and say, Jesus, master, have mercy on us. Now, leprosy was a, a deadly and miserable disease to have. It caused literally the body to decay. Fingers, hands, arms, everything, ears, everything concerning the body. Men became living dead men. You can, you can smell a leper from just a mile away. Their skin became swollen, sores developed all over their body. Even their voice was affected by this horrible disease. We also read in Leviticus that leopards were to go around and they were to cry out, unclean, unclean. They were to set themselves apart from others and, and, and to show others that they are the ones that are unclean. But I think the greatest effect that this disease had was not merely the disease itself, but the the implications of the disease. And the greatest implication was that people with leprosy were not allowed to be around their family. People with leprosy were not allowed to be around other people. They weren't allowed to have their family come around them and support them and to comfort them. Similar to uh, what we see in this this, uh, COVID virus. Where if, if someone has COVID, you're not allowed to be around that person. That person goes into isolation. This is very, it's very similar here to leprosy. That you couldn't be around them. They were cut off from not only the people of God, but also from the world. They were outcasts. Their only company was others with the same miserable disease. That was their only com- company. And saints, when we consider this miserable disease, doesn't this in a lot of ways describe, if not perfectly describe, who we were in Adam? I mean, when, when we consider the, the disease of leprosy and our sin in Adam and who we were in Adam, doesn't it match pretty well? Before Christ saved us, wasn't our sin condition Worse than one with leprosy. The Apostle Paul gives us a vivid description of our wretchedness in Romans chapter 3. He says in twelve uh, verses 12 through 18, They have become corrupt. There is no one who does good. There is not one. Their throat is an open grave. Their tongues, they kept deceiving. The venom of asp is, is on their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are shift, uh, swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. And they have not known the way of peace. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Each and every one of us 
in our sin were spiritually unclean. Each and every one of us. That outside of Christ, we are like those with leprosy, a living yet a dead corpse. Each and every one of us. We were living, but inside we were dead. Not dying, but we were pronounced dead. We were the most disgusting and miserable of all men. And just like those with leprosy were cut off from the world, we in our sin in Adam were cut off from God. There was a wide gap between us and God in our sin. And dear saints, I hope that you have not, because you have been saved for however long you've been saved, now have amnesia to that current or that, that state that you were in before Christ saved you. But, but do you remember that sinful condition that you were in? Not merely the things that you did, but the condition that you had. That pronouncement that you had before God that you are a sinner. Do you remember, saints, when you once was infected with that incurable disease of Adam's sin? When, when sin like leprosy ate away our dignity and ate away our attractiveness to God? That no one could be around us. We all, like these men with leprosy, would cry out, unclean, unclean. We might have not said that with our lips verbally, but our souls were crying out, unclean, unclean. In fact, it seems to me that there's ever only two phrases on the lips of a sinner. The only... The only two things, only two phrases the sinner can say is unclean, unclean and master have mercy on us. Those are the only two things a sinner can say. And friends, in verse 13, these men with leprosy, they see Christ and cry out, master, have mercy on us. And saints, put yourself in the shoes of these leopards. These men were outcasts. They were viewed as unclean. They have no hope. And the minute they see Jesus, they see hope. It's almost as if these, when we're out and about and we see men who are sitting down with a cardboard a sign and the moment they see someone, they stand up and they put their sign up because they think that they might receive money from that person. Well, the moment these men see Jesus, they see the one whom everyone has been talking about. They knew that Christ could perform miracles. And they knew that Christ had the power to heal them. So they run to Christ. And I love what verse 14 says. It says, and when he saw them. Beautiful, is it not? What a glorious statement this is. It's almost as if Jesus' ear was especially tuned to the cry of those who needed him. Those and when Christ saw them. It's a beautiful thing when Christ lays eyes on you, is it not? He sees his creation. He, he looks at each one of these men who are crying out for mercy. And what does he do? He looks at them with the eyes of mercy. He looks at them with the eyes of compassion. He sees his creation. And not only that, he sees the effects of Adam's sin. Have you noticed that, saints, when 
and this is something that I've barely came to a realization of when Christ sees those who are who are have horrible diseases, who are in need of a miracle. It's not merely that they need something and Christ has compassion on them, but he sees his creation itself. And he also sees the effects of Adam's sin, which is disease. Christ looks at these men and he sees one of the implications of Adam's sin, which is sickness and death and disease. And he's moved to mercy. Isn't that beautiful? Christ sees these ones who are crying out for mercy and Christ himself is not some stoic. He moves to mercy. He says in verse 14, and when he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they were going, they were cleansed. It's most interesting, is it not, that Jesus doesn't lay one hand on them. Not one hand. He doesn't pray for them. He doesn't, by his divine authority, command that his leprosy be removed. He says, go and show yourselves to the priests. Now, why the priests? Well, it was the priest's job to inspect whether a person was healed or not. And as these men are making their way to the priests, they notice that something strange begins to happen. That there's a, there's a change that begins to happen in their body. That as these men are walking, they see the sores on their face and the ulcers on their hands and bodies suddenly vanish. It's quite strange, is it not? But a miracle has taken place nonetheless. As these men were walking, they're cleansed. As our text says, as they were going, they were cleansed. This is a marvelous event, is it not, saints? For uh, it, it teaches us two truths uh, about our God and who our God is. Two truths about who our God and who our God is. The first truth that this teaches us is that God has a general love, a, a general compassion on all people. And we see this in Christ's healing of these men. Ten men with a horrible disease come to Christ for healing. And we see that Jesus doesn't just heal one man. He heals all ten men of their leprosy. And this saint speaks to the kindness to the compassion, to the mercy that God has toward all his creation. Friends, who can we attribute our jobs to? Who can we attribute our homes and cars to? Food and our refrigerators and even our being itself. It is God. And not merely Christians, but all people. There are many people that we know that are not Christians that have better jobs than us, that make more money than us. It seems from a worldly out external perspective, they're doing better than all of us. And why is that? Because God graciously gives that to them. It is God, out of his kindness and mercy, 
He gives to sinners that which they don't deserve. He gives to us and sinners that which we don't deserve. And saints, this kindness, this this general love, this mercy that God has and that God shows is not merely meant to preserve us. You see, God doesn't give the sinner gifts and the little droppings of his mercy so that this sinner can be preserved, so that the sinner can have food in the refrigerator and can have a car to go to work. God does not confer gifts upon his creation for no reason, but God is merciful to all so that all would come to him in faith and repentance. You see, God doesn't do things just to do things. But God is merciful to all so that all can come to repentance and faith. When the unbeliever receives the little droppings of God's mercy and love, it is to bring them to their knees in thankfulness and forgiveness. Isn't that the great folly and the great shame of sinners? Of those who do not acknowledge the one who has given to them the most essential thing that they need, and that is their being, who they are, the one that sustains their being. Sinners will acknowledge everything in this world except God. On a birthday, they'll acknowledge that person on their birthday. On an anniversary, on Father's Day, on Mother's Day, on Christmas. They'll acknowledge every single person, but the sinner will not acknowledge God for the simple fact that God alone gives to them being and sustains their being. God gives us this these little droppings of mercy to bring us to him. But friends, this is not the outcome that we see happen to nine of the ten men who are healed. Verse 15 says, now one of them. When he saw that he had been healed, turned back. Again, now one of them, not all of them, one of them, when he saw that he had been healed, turned back. As these ten men, as they're walking, they all notice that their disease is no longer there. But we only read that only one turns back. And the rest keep going. This is the most shocking of the text, is it not? Even Jesus is shocked by this. He says in verse 17 and 18, were there not ten cleansed? But the nine, where are they? One comes back and Jesus says, where's the rest of you at? I healed you all. It was the great Puritan Thomas Watson who said, God's mercy is one of two things. It is either a magnet or a millstone. Again, God's mercy is one of two things. It's either a magnet or a millstone. That is to say, God's mercy can be a wonderful magnet that draws men's hearts to Christ, or it can be a millstone that hangs around one's necks to drag them deeper into death. These nine leopards, while yes, it is true, that each of them are healed of their disease. But saints, we have to really ask, was their state really improved upon? Yes, each and every one of them are healed of leprosy, but was there even a, a healing there? Was there a change in their state? 
Was there an advancement in their being? It certainly was for a time. But they kept going. They kept walking. Christ heals them and they just go along their way. They don't turn back in thankfulness. And the sad reality, saints, is if these men didn't repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, then they are going to hell. And I'm sure that all the years they spend in hell would it not make their leprosy one of the most desirable things to have. In hell, they're going to pray that they had leprosy. Hell will make the misery of their leprosy look like the most blissful state. It will be their beatific vision. And saints, this is what we need to tell our unbelieving family members and friends. Do not despise the riches of God's mercy, but come to Him in faith and repentance. Apart from telling them the good news of Jesus Christ, let me give you the simple fact of this. God made you, and He's sustaining you. So repent and believe. Even our young people. There's many who are here this morning. Parents who are to teach our young people, our, our, our grandchildren and our children, that do not despise the sermon in the morning when the preacher is preaching. But, but this is God's mercy to you. This is God showing forth mercy. That he's allowed you to be with a parent that's in the covenant community. And you receive, by extension of being a child of a covenant parent, covenant blessings, which is hearing the gospel. Hearing the proclamation of Jesus Christ and him crucified. Don't ignore that. Do not despise, again, saints, the riches of God's mercy, even to us, but come to him in Christ for today is the day of salvation. And saints, this is the glorious news, is that, is that one of the leopards, as he's running back to Christ, he says, today is the day of salvation. As the nine kept moving forward, one by God's grace turns back. And verse 15 says, now one of them, when he saw that he had been healed, turned back, glorifying God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at his feet, giving thanks to him. And he was a Samaritan. What great two verses these are. Marvelous two verses. For we see that this sinner who's now been saved, the way he responds is a proper response to God's mercy and kindness. This one man, he leaves his friends. He leaves the pack of nine. And he runs back to the one who is Jesus Christ. And with a voice, I'm sure, louder than the one that he used when he first saw Jesus. Remember when he first sees Jesus, he says, mercy, have master, have mercy upon us. I'm sure with even a louder voice, he's running back to Christ, giving him thanks and glorifying him. And he falls on his face at his feet and he gives him thanks. What a glorious scene this is. We can almost we can almost picture this man 
with, I'm sure, tears in his eyes. He's crying so much as he falls on his face. He might, he might even be making mud out of his tears. He falls at the feet of Jesus and he gives him thanks. Thank you for saving me. This, saints, is the model of how we are to express our thankfulness to God. Yes, for the various gifts of mercy that he bestows upon us, but more so because he's given to us his son. And saints, in all the world and in the history of man, is there anything that anyone has done for the history of man that has uh, been better than the father giving to man his son? There's nothing that compares. There's nothing that compares. And this thankfulness to God in Christ, and hear me now, it should, it should radiate in our lives. This thankfulness that we have, it should radiate. It's not something that we say merely on Thanksgiving. And that's not something that we say merely when someone asks us, what are you thankful for? But it's something that should be lived out. We live out our thanksgiving. We live out our thankfulness to God. Our change of state, it should cause a change in character. A change in character. And we have to ask ourselves, saints, that Jesus Christ doesn't merely just change us in our relation to God, that we go from sinners to now saints, but also there's a there's an ontological change that's happening as well. That he's changing how we react, how we speak, how we conduct ourselves, how we think. We have to ask ourselves, are we really thankfulness? Are we really pulling forth thankfulness, I should say? Are you a patient person? Are you patient with people? In fact, the one thing that I've learned the many things that I've learned by being married and having a son is patience. Saints, are you a patient person? And not because it's a good thing to be, but because out of thankfulness to God, because he was patient and long-suffering with you. Are you kind and quick to show forth mercy to people? Not merely because it's a good thing to do, but because of out of thankfulness to God for showing mercy to us. In giving to us his son. Are you a grudge holder? Do you hold grudges? Do you remember the sins that people have committed against you? And you hold those sins against them. Or out of thankfulness to God, are you quick to forgive? Are you reminded of God's word in Jeremiah? For I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. Do you remember the sins? Of those who have sinned against you. Or do you promise yourself the moment they sin against you, I will forgive them. And I will not count their sin against them. You see, saints, the saved life is a changed life. God is not merely interested again in changing our relation to him, but also changing who we are. Christ is given to us as righteousness, but also as wisdom. Not merely a change, saints, and no longer committing those sins that we we used to indulge in. Doesn't mean that we go from getting drunk to now not getting drunk. Being a fornicator to now not being a fornicator. Not merely that, 
But again, a change in how we speak, a change in how we react, a change in how we respond, a change in how we think. Saints, this changed life is a way the Christian shows their thankfulness to God. The Christian takes all that God has been for them and continues to be for them. Long-suffering, patient, kind, loving, merciful, all of these things. And he allows those things to radiate from his life so that others can smell the sweet aroma of Christ. Are you leaving, saints, the the sweet fragrance of Christ anytime you're around your friends and family members? And I'm the first to say I'm not. We need to ask God that he will allow us to be and to conduct ourselves as Christian men and women in a world that is dying and sinful. For true saving faith always issues forth a life of change and obedience. And this is what we see in this one leopard who was healed. His turning from the other nine men symbolizes his turning from sin. His turning from the nine men, it symbolizes that he no longer be wants to be who he used to be, but, but he turns to Christ now in faith. And saints, I love this. I love verse 19. What is Christ's response to this, this man's faith? He says, stand up and go. Your faith has made you well. Beautiful. Beautiful. This is the second truth that we learn about God. That in addition to him having a, a general love for all his creation, that God has a specific, a special love for all his creation. There is a specific people whom he loves. You see, although Jesus heals the body of all ten men, he chooses only to heal the soul of one man. And this one man is quite different than his ten friends. Look at verse 16. Look at the end of verse 16, if you would. We read this little line. It's it's almost as if it's a footnote. It says that he's a Samaritan. Again, if you read books, you know what footnotes are. And this, Luke puts this little information here for a reason. For saints, this little information, it magnifies the grace of God. As we heard a little bit this morning from Brother Dustin, Historically, Samaritans were descendants of those Hebrews who intermarried with pagan people, the Gentiles. And because of this, Samaritans were considered by Jews as half-breeds and even worse, unclean. In fact, they were, they, they, they were considered to come out the womb unclean. They were despised by the Jewish people. So this little information, and hear me now, saints, this little information that this man was a Samaritan has massive implications. For not only was this man unclean because he was a Samar- because he was a man with leprosy, but he was a Samaritan. It makes him even more unclean. He's he's doubly unclean. And saints, I love this little information that Luke provides for us. For saints, hear me now. It reminds us 
that there is no depths a sinner can sink in which God's mercy cannot pull him out. This man not only had leprosy, but he was a Samaritan. And Christ was a Jew. Jews do not speak to Samaritans, let alone heal them. And Christ, at this moment, tears down racial walls. He tears down those misinterpretations and wrong assumptions that the Jews had for years concerning Samaritans. And the most unlikeliest of person, a Samaritan, Jesus says, that is my own. That I didn't just come for one people, I came for all types of people. This information shows us, saints, that a sinner, no matter how far, no matter how low, no matter how wide that man may be, he is not so far in which the arm of the Lord cannot reach him. I hope you know that about your unsaved family members and friends. They're not so far gone. In which Christ cannot, by his arm, pull them out of the well. Saints, can't we all testify to this? I mean, can't we all, with, with one voice, amen this? Were we all not at a great and infinite distance from God? This man was a Samaritan. He had leprosy. He was at a great distance from the people. Were we not at a great distance from God? And saints, what great length did God go to reach us? Well, St. Paul gives us the answer in 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake. He made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What great length did God go to save us? He sent his son to live, die, and rise for us. And saints, that is the beauty of the incarnation in light of all the other things and many things that the incarnation teaches us, that the eternal son becomes man. It teaches us this one truth, that there is no length that is outside the reach of our saving hand of God. But from heaven, the eternal son came and he sought his bride. I mean, think of the infinite distance from earth to heaven. And God comes down to his people, becomes like his people to save his people. Saints, we have plenty to be thankful for. Plenty to be thankful for. And I hope this morning that you were reminded of the sweet news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That it's still the most sweetest news of all. That the gospel of Jesus Christ, it still is the best news of all. That the story of this, this one who is the eternal son of God became man to save man is still the thing that should allow us, 
even when we have, in many ways, advanced in our theological knowledge and advanced in our Christian life, bring us to our knees like this leopard to the feet of Jesus and say, thank you. Thank you. As we come to a close, saints, this is a wonderful conversion story. And last Lord's Day, we ended by saying the thief on the cross that morning, he woke up and he had breakfast with Satan. And he ended the day having a feast with Christ. He was saved. And we can say something similar about this man who was healed of leprosy and was given saving faith. That I'm sure this morning or this that man that morning was was like every other morning for that man. He woke up very restless from probably being in pain all night. Having aches all night. And because of his current state, he might have been tempted in his despair to cry out to God and and ask, God, why do I have this disease? He might have cursed the day he was born and even cursed God. Why not someone else? Why me? Why do I have leprosy? But by the end of the day, He's thanking God that he had leprosy. You see, he starts out the morning cursing himself and the day he was born and probably even cursing God that he had leprosy. But the, but at the end of the day, saint, he's praising God that he was the one that had leprosy. For it was through his leprosy that he was saved. It was through his leprosy that he was given the eyes to see Jesus. Not merely as a miracle worker, but as the savior of men. Through his leprosy, he was able to meet Jesus. And saints, this is so different than the rest of the nine. The rest of the nine men that day... They end that day by by saying, I'm so happy I met Jesus because now my body is well. But this one man left that day and said, my soul is well and praise and glory be to Jesus Christ. Saints. We are to have this type of perspective and thankfulness to God. And as this is the first Sunday of the year. I hope that the rest of the year you allow what God has done for you to radiate from your lives so that others can smell the sweet aroma of Christ. And they see from a pack of nine, one Christian, one who's been saved by God's grace. Let's pray.